I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. U.S. equities, in fact, shares everywhere seem to be running away with themselves right now. Is this healthy? And who wins? Other than, of course, those people who manage to sell before the price tops out. But what about the companies themselves and the broader economy? Even though Donald Trump keeps tweeting about how great it is that share prices are so high, is it really a good thing when share prices just keep getting higher? Does it actually do anything for productivity or economic growth? That's this week on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Well, we did get lambasted for last week's podcast on the Royals. It was too lightweight for some people, off topic for many others, and too pro-royal for the Republicans. So uh, I think we satisfied no one. So let's get back onto safer turf this week. The uh, US share market running away with itself right now, despite the trade uncertainty and uh, a global economy that's showing very low levels of growth. The S&P and the Dow and the Nasdaq continually are hitting new highs even if company profits aren't too hot. In fact, on Friday, we hit a new high in Australia on the ASX 200 as well. So we've actually seen a decline of almost 3% in S&P 500 profits expected for the fourth quarter of 2019, yet share prices continue to rise. There's understandably a lot of speculation that the US share market is overvalued. Why? Because really there's nowhere else for people to put money. But a broader question What do shares do for business? They're used to incentivize executives, but does it produce the best results for the company or shareholders or for the businesses themselves? I mean, Steve, we've spoken about this before, haven't we? Uh, You know, share trades are transactions on the secondary market. Why would a company be so concerned about what price its shares sell for? Yeah, I mean, this is it's uh, probably my favourite cameo to start with. Here is with a, a, a uh, observation on my one of my uh, very beloved brothers-in-law, who's a highly ethical man, and and, and ditto for his his uh, his wife, my sister, and they decided to set their own self-managed superannuation fund, and were very in, earnestly explaining to me this is about twenty years ago that they decided to buy a lot of cochlear shares because. They liked the research that Cochlear was doing, and they wanted to promote Cochlear's research into improving hearing and, and deaf deaf people. And I didn't have the heart to tell them, you bought the shares off another speculator, not a cent of the money you're buying is going to Cochlear. Mm. Uh, but the, the, the picture that most people have is when they buy shares in a company, they effectively they're buying their shares off that company. And no, they're not. They're buying off somebody else, in the, unless there actually is an initial share offering or a, um, you know, a, new, a new distribution of shares. Uh, they're buying off somebody else who's bought uh, the shares in the expectation their price is going to rise. And um, yeah. the, per- the person that bought it from obviously believes the shares worth less than, than they sold it for. They reckon they've capitalised a gain in some sense. And yet, so, what, yeah. and yet we incentivise uh, executives and companies based on share prices. Why do we do that if that's the case? Well, this comes back to one of the uh, wonderful pieces of, of, uh, of, of wisdom and erudite thinking coming out of neoclassical economics, uh, which is the idea of shareholder value. And um, 
it, it, it was an ideology that began in about the 1970s, 1980s, and it comes out largely out of the, oh, I have a very hard time not finding insulting words these days, academics, let's call them, who uh, developed what's called the efficient markets hypothesis. And they, they argued as well as uh, arguing that uh, shares are efficiently allocating capital, that that's the, the vision they have of the role of the stock market to efficiently allocate the world's capital. They also argued that there was a principal and agent problem between the managers of a corporation and its shareholders because they said which the, the objective should be to maximise shareholder value. That's the idea. So the, you should be trying to increase the wealth of your shareholders, however they might have acquired the shares, whether they bought them directly off you or they bought them off another speculator. Uh, you should be trying to maximise that over time. And to actually ensure that that happened, uh, you should reward the top executives of the company on the basis of the share market performance. Right. So you get people like, you know, Steve Jobs is famous for taking just a $1 uh, a paycheck per year, but his rewards were in options which only manifested themselves if the Apple share price exceeded a, a target levels, which, of course, it did under his management. Now, he certainly was as objectionable a human being as apparently he was to work with, and I'm talking from friends with you know, one person removed direct personal experience, um, he was successful in driving that company into new innovations and so on. So the, in that particular case, you can point to instances where that's the case. But then you get the majority of companies uh, where what actually drives the share price uh, is overall economic conditions rather than specific innovations in that company. Yeah. And well, which, is, also, which is yeah. what we're seeing now. I mean, generally, the share yeah, price yeah. is going up because money is shifting there because, well, perhaps a bit of false hope for the future, but also, uh, you know, there's there's no money being made in bonds right now. So they're, they're looking for yield. Yeah, yeah, and they're going anywhere for, for yield. And it, it is not a case that that is actually generating uh, research funds. In fact, when you, again, I, I can't quote figures on this. I might be relying on you on that front at some point. But uh, with, with your, your research and the data, <laughs> not this time. Okay. But uh, what, what you find is that um, the, the, the actual level of share issuing is less than the lesser level of, of share cancellation, mm. largely driven these days by stock buybacks, of yeah. course. Well, I mean, this so, is the point. I mean, actually, I was going yeah. to get onto that because we are seeing yeah. a, a, a massive amount of share buybacks now. I mean, but part of that is because uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, helped companies repatriate them, their, their funds from overseas. And when they bought them back into, into America, they weren't really quite sure what to do with them. So they bought shares back in their own companies. But if my share price falls... If I, because uh, I'm still curious as to you know your idea that uh, not your idea but your suggestion that the the way it's seen is that you know I I want to see my share price maintained because m my duty is to try and look after the wealth of people who've invested in my companies whether directly or indirectly but it's in my interest actually if the share price falls that's that's an incentive for me to buy back those shares uh, and you know that's ultimately going to boost the price as well because we're reducing supply so you know i could do that rather than and that's the opposite of really what capitalism wants to achieve isn't it because rather than using that money to invest in expansion uh i'm using it to buy back those shares to, to boost the value of those shares and we're seeing that yeah, happening that, a lot in the u.s and that and that's a large part of what's been driving the share price the other thing which has been driving it dramatically and you can't, can't ignore this is the um the use of um the central bank's uh, quantitative easing program, because that QE has, you know, in, in an indirect fashion, but it, it directly it, it boosts share prices. In fact, that was the intention. And when you look back and see why did uh, 
uh, Bernanke copy of what he thought was the way the Japanese uh, went about the same story, that the Japanese did not do this. Uh, but that was to uh, buy, buy bonds off financial institutions, uh, meaning that they, the, in the financial institutions' asset side, they had a fall in the amount of income earning assets and an increase in the amount of cash. Now, as a financial institution, you are required to only buy financial instruments uh, with that with that money. You're low performing because your income earning component's gone down, your cash component's gone up. What do you do? You go and buy shares. Mm. And you buy the shares, uh, of course, that's buying pressure to the tune of $1 trillion a year, effectively, because that was the scale of QE, $1 trillion a year of additional demand to buy shares. Well, duh, it's certainly in the in America, it, 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 that, that's driven the share price from, I think it, the share price bottomed at uh, 666. That was the lowest level of the S&P after the uh, financial crisis, 666, mark of the devil. I love it. Hmm. What is it now? That's three thousand two hundred. Yeah. I'm looking at the okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's a factor. It'll be of higher five. tomorrow, and it'll be higher the day after. Yeah, the way it seems and, to be at the moment. Yeah. And as you take a look at the long term data, you can get data going back to 1927. Uh, if if you look on the uh, um, let's see, this is the Yahoo Finance site, and what you see uh, is pretty much a flat line. I mean, from 20, 1927, way out to 1975. Uh, but it starts about 1994, in fact. Uh, we even jump over the 87 boom and bust. And then you've got these three big peaks in 2000 and 2007, and finally the current one, which, which dwarfs the previous ones. Mm. And what has gone on, and particularly since Greenspan's uh, role as, as central bank governor, he uh, did the famous rescue of the financial system in 87. He got the job as, as chairman not very long before the stock market crashed 20% in one day. And his reaction was, we have to rescue the stock market. That was twice the scale of the fall of the Great Depression. That The biggest fall in the Great Depression was 10% in one day. This right. is 20. But, I mean, why do they have to rescue? I mean, there's a, there's, they a, don't. There's, there's a quote that the stock market has predicted 10 of the last three recessions uh, because, of course, <laughs> you know, what happens is, uh, you know, there's so many, so much money tied in it. When it, when it, the shares fall in value, which it doesn't mean a recession, does it? It just means that the money moves elsewhere. If we look at uh, the forty-three trillion dollars, which is tied up in the U.S. stock market, that's forty-three percent uh. of the total world capitalization. It just, money just moves to where the yield is. You can also get it being wiped out. I mean, the, 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 you have to say that if, if you if you have a, a dumb person's analysis of the stock market crash of 1929, and that's the sort of analysis that any neoclassical economist has, uh, then you see that after the stock market crash, the Great Recession, the Great Depression began. Yeah. So that's the fear. And this, this is what happens whenever you see a tumble um, of any substantial size on financial markets. It's almost built into the DNA of neoclassical economists, even though they have never really they've got it the mythical under have a mythical vision of the market being driven to equilibrium this so-called efficient markets uh hypothesis um it, whenever that crash occurs the, the the visceral reaction is oh i'm not going to have a great depression on my watch so bang in 1987 greenspan does the the, the guarantee that announces that any any financial institution needing support will find it from the Fed. That's not the exact wording, but that was the basic impact. So he basically said the market's not going to fall any further. And then the whole impressive pressure became whenever the market goes down, we've got to help push the market back up again. On this front, I, you know, this is one of the reasons I end up siding with people like my, Ms. Shedlock, whom I normally fight with on 
uh, post-Keynesian versus Austrian views of the economy, the extent to which the stock market these days is manipulated is ridiculous. Mm. And uh, that, that is, that. so you first of all had the 87 crash, then you had the 2000 crash, then you had 2007. All of these, of course, weren't supposed to happen according to neoclassical theory, but the response of economists in those positions of power was to bump the share price back up again. So if, if you have a negative reaction to any fall in the market, uh, and and a positive reaction to any increase, and you've got levers which can actually drive that as they can by their effectively infinite capacity to create money, uh, then you're going to continually see the market heading up towards booms uh, to boom boom levels and busts afterwards, mm-hmm. and that's what we've seen. It we we now have um, like if the S and P itself is you, you're looking at about a factor of six and a half increase uh, of the uh, S and P. Since the the bottom back in about what, 2010, but it's not but, making it's not making those companies any more effective. It's not giving those companies any no, more cash. It's not no. giving them investment opportunities or driving them to innovation in any way, is it? No, no. The, the whole thing is, you, the, the, you want to get innovation, you've got to get finance to entrepreneurs. Mm. Now. Um, are these companies entrepreneurs? No, they're, they're, they're yeah. the vast majority of financial manipulators. And, uh, the, yeah. the entrepreneur, yeah, the entrepreneurs, and you know, you know I'm an Elon Musk fanboy, so that's one place where I see. <laughs> and he owns quite a chunk of that company. So that, there's the difference, isn't it? I mean, we've we've moved yeah. on from the innovators like Henry Ford, for example, or the the, the mill owners of the industrial mm. revolution like uh, Richard Arkwright. We, we now have this managerial class who don't invent yeah. stuff. They just focus on the short term. They manage the board. They manage shareholders. They feel very little risk. They get paid well for it. Mm. But they're not innovators, and that's the problem, isn't it? Well, in fact, they look at what they did with Boeing. They're certainly innovated there. They invented a plane that crashes. Yeah. You know, right. I mean, Top this, heavy. The, so, yeah, in every sense of the word. And the management crashes out with a mere $60 million compensation. Or how tragic. Um, yeah, the innovation, it, 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 the, the stock market is not at all working, first of all, to increase the amount of capital. In general, we find it, particularly with share buybacks now, that the, the, the aggregate value of shares, you know, flat or falling, there are more shares being cancelled than new ones being issued. Uh, secondly, the innovation is occurring when we play, we, we talk about Silicon Valley as the location for innovation. That's venture capitalist uh, funded, generally speaking, not funded by share market issue. Um, so share issues only occur after a company is established to some extent. And then some of the best innovation occurs when you keep yourself away from the stock market, yeah. which is largely what's, uh, what Musk has been trying to do. Well, because you're and, not answering to shareholders. I mean, you yeah, know, it's, yeah. it's a bit like management by committee, isn't it? If you're yeah. pacifying shareholders rather than doing what you think is, is right for the company. Yeah. Uh, and, and, yeah, and you're living on a three-monthly cycle. You were saying yeah. what's happening to the stock market price in the last three months. That becomes the major the major driving force. But isn't it interesting? Because if we go back to, uh, to you know, Karl Marx, uh, you know, he was a believer, wasn't he, that we should have, there, sh- there should be ownership of, of companies. He was seeing it as, an, uh, you know, ownership by the workers. He had, during his lifetime, that's when we saw the idea of limited liability companies. So owners were not personally liable for, for company debts, which is sort of good and bad news, bad in that it can diminish risk. And I think that's the inherent problem that we're talking about here, but good in that it opened ownership. So you could have shareholders, and some of those shareholders could be, the workers in in the company, which was you know part of what Karl Marx wanted to see, but it's also a problem, isn't it? Because the two things happening there: you're diminishing risk, and then you're also a management by committee. Both bad things, really. 
Yeah, I'm not sure I read read Marx quite the same way you did, yeah, there, best mate. But um, but uh, ownership of the means of production didn't mean everybody becoming a capitalist in Marx's sense it became. No, but he said, didn't he yeah. see it as a stepping stone to it though? Uh, I have not not in those, not in the technical stuff that I tend to read. Maybe in some of the more uh, the stuff he wrote for the New York Times and so on. That mm. might have been an argument he made there. So I, I'll reserve judgment on that one until I have a, have a bit of a look. But um, fun, fundamentally, you have a you know you, you, if you have any defence of capitalism, the defence is that it's a system which generates the greatest level of innovation. Yeah. And the question then is, what is the stock market's role in, in creating that level of innovation? And in fact, when you you, you find often it's more hampering innovation, um, but rather than rather than increasing it. And a large part of the hampering has come out of the theories of neoclassical economists that say we have to give the managers the same incentive the shareholders have. So we then, because the shareholders benefit may, in, in the neoclassical vision, they benefit either from dividends or from uh, share price rises. But it's set up in such a way that the higher the share price uh, is, is the, the better the company is seen as performing. But I, w- I wonder, and, where, I wonder where yeah. the happy halfway house is between you know going back to the the, the times when you might have had, uh, for example, mill owners in the north of England uh, that you know uh, owned the mills, were were entrepreneurs, uh, mm. were were looking for looking for innovation, but they would you know they were self funded in in most cases, um, and uh, and they took risk. Versus the situation which we have today, where there is very little risk, we have the managerial class, and we have mm. we have shareholders. How do you get halfway between that? Because obviously we can't have uh, a world of Richard Arkwrights because there's just not enough of them or enough people with with money. So how do you get a halfway house which is effective? Is it is the idea of limited liability companies is that a good idea? Would, would is our, sh- our shareholders still important, or is there a, a better halfway? Well, house? I think it's it's actually the nature of share ownership and the, and the and the level of of, of uh, a human status given to a company. But the companies now have the right to share as individuals, yeah. and that's that is a major uh, problem we're facing globally because you have companies suing countries, which, for example, bring in pollution controls because that damages their business. And there's a, an arbitration court where they can actually make you know manage to sue a country for a, for a public policy. But the, I've been, I thought about this some time ago when I was working on the idea of a modern debt jubilee. And what I, what I th- thought of is that we need shares which actually encourage innovation and encourage uh, raising of new capital. So I, what I suggested is what I call, I call them a jubilee shares, again, in the same line as the idea of a modern debt jubilee. And that is that if you buy a share off as a primary issue. So if you buy a share from the company itself, and what my mm. brother-in-law and sister thought they were doing when they bought cochlear shares, then that share can last forever so long as you don't sell it. Okay? Yeah. However, once you've sold it, it becomes a secondary share. Right. And then the secondary share uh, uh, has, has a lifespan of, say, 50 years. Right. After a bit, which a bit like a bond. In that yeah, make, make it into a, a, a voting bond. In fact, this is mm-hmm. a, my, my good mate, Tron Andresen, the uh, systems engineer in Norway. He first suggested the idea of making all shares into, into voting called voting bonds, which would expire at a certain point in time. Mm. I prefer to make a, a combination of the two. So if you buy a share off the company, you're therefore giving capital to the company as one of the uh, rights that comes from that, you then the share has an infinite life. Um, but if as soon as you sell it in the secondary market, it's got 50 years. 
And then that way, the encouragement would be, uh, if you want to make a like a, a permanent return, you take the risk because, of course, you might invest in companies that fold, but you do you know, very good due diligence. You look around for the innovators, the good ideas. You put your money into those. You buy shares and in initial offerings, and that gives you uh, a permanent uh, source of both capital appreciation so how, how and does dividends. That ch- how does that change the behavior of the company? I guess the, the company, know because you're going to replenish those shares at some point, aren't you, I guess? So yeah, the share, the, the, your shares are going to expire. perpetual state of IPOs. Yeah, effectively. I want, I want to generate more initial uh, public offerings, more capital issues by corporation with a specific intent of financing investment. Whereas the secondary stuff, it should expire after a number of years. 50 is quite a large, you know, like the, the most bonds, long-term bonds are 30 years. They're suggesting 50 is an arbitrary idea, but the idea is to say, well, at a certain point, there ain't no, no, ain't no point speculating with this because its value, as you get closer and closer to the year, year 49, its value is falling towards zero. I wonder whether size is also part and parcel. That makes perfect sense. But I wonder whether that, that's going to help the, the issue of size because uh, shares have meant we have bigger companies. We've got massive corporations with massive resources. I mean, you'd think that would be a good thing. We could look at economies of scale, for example, and say, you know, that would, that, that's would that got to be a, a benefit. Uh, and they've got the resources perhaps to do stuff that other companies can't do. But uh, do they have the same driving force um the the smaller companies with a an owner who owns a specific significant proportion of that company uh is there driving the agenda those people who got skin in the game so for example let's look at microsoft you know the biggest corporation in the world uh, or one of mm-hmm. them uh it, it created windows early on it created office I'm struggling now to think of uh, i mean i know they're doing lots of stuff but nothing as big as windows or microsoft office it's all uh you know where's the innovation gone and no, I'm sure, building Michael, on what and, got. Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I'm sure Microsoft would say, "Oh, we're innovating in the cloud and all that sort of stuff." Well, you didn't invent the cloud. You just you just a bit play in that. And they were actually late to the cloud as well. Mm. Yeah, and I I think that's a, that's an that's an issue. And this is one thing about what what is a corporation itself. This is also raises that concept because again, neoclassical theory can't explain understand why everybody's not working as you and I are as individual contractors. Uh, that's the idea of efficiency. But in fact, if you look at, it, at what a corporation does, a corporation is a command system. It is not a part of it. it internally, does not function as a market. And the companies that have tried to function internally as a market have normally collapsed in various ways, Enron being one of, one of the uh, classic instances of that. The corporations operate as internal hierarchies, mm. and they are more effective as a hierarchy uh, cut, shutting down the market effectively, limiting the market, yeah. uh, but benefiting by being embedded in a market system at the same some time. Might call, some might call them abusers of power in in that sense. Yeah, yeah. And mm. like, if you, I think I may have mentioned to you a few times, the guy Blair Fix, who's somebody I highly recommend everybody to read his material, Blair has explained that the income distribution we see in the world can only be explained, <clears throat> pardon me, by hierarchy, your position in the hierarchy. So the bigger the corporations get, the higher the level of pay of the top executives, and therefore the, 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 there is there is a positive element to corporations getting bigger. As you say, there's economies of scale, but there's also once they get to a, a substantial scale, there's, there's abuse of power. Uh, and Boeing being one of the most classic instances of that, mm. as one of the only you know the one of the only two uh, corporations producing wide bodies jets. Uh, and desperate to hang on to market share against this one major competitor. That's where I think part of the abuse came from. If you have multiple 
uh, a, a, not not a huge number. You don't need a bloody perfect competition number of producers of things like planes. There really is only room for a handful of those producers on the planet. But at past a certain point, they can abuse the regulators. They can manipulate them, as we saw with the way Boeing was doing its own certification that led to the 737 MAX catastrophe. Uh, so you, you get a point where they can abuse their, their size becomes so great relative to the market that they can abuse the market and the regulators of the markets. So there is a balance between the two, and I'm so, I'm pretty pretty convinced we've gone past the balance point. Yeah, we have. I think in in almost every sector. So we look at uh, mm-hmm. you know abusers of power. What has Amazon invented? Again, they'll say, well, you know, we invented a platform for you know we we invented a new system of distribution, but they didn't invent distribution. They'll say, well, we invented. Uh, a, a cloud platform that uh, you know lots of people are now using, but they didn't invent the cloud. All all they're mm. doing is using the. Uh, their, it's not a monopoly, but it's close to it, isn't it? It's getting close to it. They're using well, their I mean, yeah, of I mean, that, 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 that is an interesting example because Amazon. I mean, I'm I'm a heavy user of Amazon. Okay? Mm, we I, all are. I, and yeah, Amazon Prime for watching my tennis. Uh, yeah. Amazon for downloading for get for buying books. Uh, it was a very effective uh, distribution system, and you know even physical copies of books they've streamlined that. I've, you know, I get you know, regularly delivered over here. I'm, I'm waiting for the first drone to land on my balcony one day. Um, so they they have driven innovation dramatically, and that gives an enormous physical economies of scale advantage over normal bookshops. Um, you know the electronic distribution is is one mm. thing, but even the physical distribution, it is easier to get a book from Amazon and faster than it is to go to the local bookshop. Uh, which, which itself has to have an enormous warehouse within physical reach of human beings. Right, but they started with it the, out. Yeah, but it started with the Kindle, and that yeah. that was in a, that was true innovation, wasn't it? That was a uh, that was that was a smart idea, uh, and pretty quickly they grew. They uh, and pretty quickly they started to abuse power because they they squeeze margins everywhere they possibly could, and then they they did exactly the same thing in the retail space. Well, funny thing is, I've spoken to a couple of, uh, of publishers on this front. Uh, the, the, it's not the end Kindle itself or the electronic side that actually work. Kindle is a pretty a pretty dead product for Amazon these days. Mm. Kindle software is slightly different. But it, people still want physical copies of books, it seems. So it's, it's the innovation that they've really driven that competition on is not so much the Kindle side of things as have got the physical distribution nailed faster than others. And on that front, would uh, several small companies have generated the same level of uh, innovation into um, you know, drone delivery, uh, efficient warehouses, et cetera, et cetera? Possibly not. Mm. So, okay. But it, to me, the, it, it's, the, it's more the abuse of power with the, when the financial manipulation becomes the driving force of a company. And then in the case of you know, vital industries where you want safety to be paramount like airlines, you don't want a company like Boeing uh, using its political and monetary muscle to muzzle the regulators and produce planes that fall out of the air, which have then called means Boeing probably will fall out of the corporate corporate world as well. I'm, I'd be quite amazed if, if Boeing survives uh, anything like its current sky, scale as time goes on. Well, I'm sure so, Donald Trump will do his best to uh, make sure that everyone buys Boeing and and doesn't buy from that, now that, why? that nasty why competitor why? in Europe. Why doesn't he lost lead by buying the, the next next Air Force One as a Boeing seven three seven Max? <laughs> <laughs> We'd all that like could, to see that. That, that, that could help. That could help. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, look, you you you've mentioned many times that you are an Elon Musk fanboy. God, mm-hmm. I hope you appreciate it. I mean, he owns a quarter of Tesla, uh, so you've got a ninety seven billion dollar company there. That's I mean, small compared to Microsoft and Apple. 
but mm. the share price has been rocketing uh, lately. So, uh, if you excuse the pun, but maybe uh, given where else he's flying, but that mm. maybe the, the system isn't you know broken. Maybe we it's just not, need to not work totally on the farm bro- formula. You know, that's we, why that's that's why I want to tweak things like I do like an IPO shares lasting longer, uh, having having. Uh, because you know, Elon Musk is a great hater of uh, the short world, and uh, he's actually thoroughly enjoying seeing the shorts get slaughtered right now. Mm. Uh, for those who don't know, most people listening to the podcast would know what shorts do, but they they yeah. buy sh- they they buy shares they haven't got, yeah. or they sell shares they haven't got, and the expectation the price is going to go down. They can buy them more cheaply and make a profit that way. I actually have some good close friends who are. Uh, have always been critical of Musk and have got short positions. And I'm sorry, Craig, and a few other mates out there, but tough shit. I'm actually glad to see you getting done here because I want to see that company succeed given the innovation it's doing. Yeah. So, uh, but the, the, again, the mechanisms that have been built up on the market are speculative mechanisms. And as Kane said very well, I mean, about 80 years ago, uh, when the when the when the driving force and the development of your economy is, is the is the side effect of the performance of a casino, the job is likely to be all done. Well, well that, certainly that is that. the problem, isn't it? So, because mm. if you look at you look at Tesla, you look at Musk, you've got a real entrepreneur mm. versus a, an overpaid professional manager in a in a large corporation. Mm. If you had the time to consider these things, you'd look and go, well, okay, I really need to look at uh, which companies. Have got smart entrepreneurs with skin in the game. Let's invest in in those companies, but people don't do that because uh, a, a lot of the share trades are run by algorithms. People don't have time to make mm. considered decisions. If you slowed the whole thing down, imagine, for example, if you said, "Well, you can buy and sell your shares once a day, rather than mm. uh, once a millisecond." I wonder how much that would change things. Perhaps we would start to look and say, "Well, Lena, you know, let's look in depth at the companies that we're buying and selling in, rather than making these." Uh, haphazard decisions which are really yeah, based you, on herd behavior i mean it is not just herd behavior i mean i think i've told you uh, one of my run-ins with uh, in the meetings he's, he's a nice guy so i'm not going to call it a run-in but met someone who happens to own the world's largest uh, high frequency trading company and mm. uh, told me that the, the, he owns up to five percent of the of the uh, equity of, of uh, about on a, of companies across the world in about about 40 countries and the average length of holding a share is 16 seconds now, that is the type of behavior that dominates the volatility of the stock market. And then algorithms on top of that, plus day traders and so on and so forth, you're talking a vast majority of the trading going on there actually being speculation and gambling, not, uh, look, not looking around for saying who's the innovative manager, who should we get capital to. And it's, you know, we've, this, a large part of the you know, financialization of the world has been making that the primary decision mm. rather than what innovation are we generating out of this, what what new technologies, what new approaches to solving human and, and ecological problems are we seeing? That, that's become secondary to the actions of a, of, a, of a gambling market. So if we and just slow it down, if we just say, yeah, you can trade once a day, mm. how would that change yep. things? Yeah, that's the, there's the idea of what's called the Tobin tax because the, uh, the economist uh, James Tobin first suggested the idea of a, a tiny tax on, on financial transactions, just enough to make it expensive to make multiple trades per day. Yeah. So that uh, you would reduce the encouragement. Of course, that's one of the many innovations that uh, corporate lobbies have been fighting uh, incessantly. So Tobin taxes would be one to go go about it. I would, I I've, I can see Tobin taxes being gamed in various ways, um, and. It, to, to, to me, I'd rather redefine the share itself in such a way that we encourage 
share the, the, the idea of the Jubilee share, shares that last indefinitely. Mm. Uh, as we bought from an IPO, shares that expire if you buy them, if they're bought and sold on the secondary market. Something that puts the primary market and capital formation ahead of the secondary market and price and the price level. So does that change the perception of risk for the people running those companies? I guess it, I guess it does because you've got to take risks to keep on getting the funding. Yeah, if you don't, if you're only on the secondary market, you're not going to be getting uh, you know, new capital into the company. You are you potentially going to be shrinking in size. So mm. if you want to grow in size, you've got to be innovating, and you've got to be issuing shares that that, that that people are willing to buy, and the expectation of you'll innovate successfully. Oh, but what happens to this managerial class who all with their uh, with their smart I, suits turning up for board meetings and talking about returning shareholder value? What, what do they do, them Steve? A, think of I them. Think, Put them on a plane to the nearest star system. Tell them that there's going to be there's a virulent virus that's going to wipe them all out unless we send off the population in thirds and the Golgofrinchians go first. I mean, <laughs> I, I've, I've had this managerial class up to the eyeballs because I copped them at university as well. Mm. And like universities are sort of a microcosm of what's happened to companies over the time because it's gone from having the God vice chancellor and God professor syndrome that I, I must admit fought against in the 1970s but at least they had literally what you can call skin in the game to managerial types these days. So you find people being promoted to vice chancellor. And if you know them personally, you never thought they amount to anything and how the hell did they get to that position? And the reason is they, they were the suck up merchants. They were the ones who would go on committees and suck up to the people currently at the top and bang, they'd come back as your boss later on. And the whole university got driven around the God, God vice chancellor and the, and the, it seemed like the God, the God manager. But these guys aren't gods. They're, they're the ones who can't succeed in innovation, and they're the ones who get to the top of these organisations. Mm. Yeah, exactly, because they can walk the walk and mm. talk the talk. Uh, well, we talk the talk anyway. What, so what about cooperatives? I quite like the idea. It, it's, it's sort of very Marxian, isn't it, that people own the company. There's a few of them around. We've got the John Lewis Partnership in the UK. We've got mm. building societies are often cooperatives. But uh, cooperative doesn't seem like the environment for innovation to me. I like the idea that the workers own the own the company, but how do you innovate when you've, you again it's management by committee? Well, uh, there's actually an area called the Mondragon region of Spain, which is a uh, it's in the Basque region of Spain, and it was begun by uh, it had a, a priest played a major role in in getting the whole thing going. Um, because the area is quite depressed and he was trying to find ways to, to bring about growth. Uh, but it is an area where all the companies are owned in cooperatives. Uh, at the end of this, just reading Wikipedia to get a fast piece of information on it, it began in 1956 and it was from graduates the local technical challenge making paraffin heaters. Uh, it is now the 10th largest company in Spain. Mm. Uh, and at the end of 2014, had 70, roughly 74,000, 75,000 employees in 257 companies, and it's driven by the idea that once they get past a certain stage size, they have to break into smaller units. So, and then in, in this sense, it has been far more successful than the average corporation in Spain and potentially globally. So, cooperatives can work. And uh, again, partly one of the reasons that limited liability companies. Uh, had the impact they had was that people could say, well, I can take a risk of this, and if I lose it, if it goes bust, I'm going to lose is one dollar. Yeah, you know, if I do it myself and I can't pay the debts, I lose everything. So there's a way in which there was, you know, the, the, the potential for innovation was one of the reasons limited liability companies took over. Um, but this one, I, I'm not sure what the actual share ownership is like with internally, but it, it is all a cooperative. Everybody who works in it is a shareholder. Uh, management is rotated. Um, so you can have 
a, a capitalist system where cooperatives are the form of ownership rather than corporations and shareholders versus workers. Well, I've you know through my career, I've worked with people who've had smart ideas, who I've worked alongside, and they've taken their smart idea and then become multimillionaires. Damn it! Um, <laughs> but um, but it's interesting. I'd say in almost every every case, these people have taken their smart idea, set up companies. And right from the beginning, you know, almost in their initial slide presentations when they're looking for initial investors, you know, the big question is, what's what's the exit strategy? How are you all making money out of this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and how can we make the maximum possible possible amount of money out of out of this idea? Well, which I mean, you know, all credit to them, but it's also a bit of a weakness, isn't it? It's like you're thinking, well, okay, we're only in this for the money, which is which mm-hmm. is fine because it's that's what business is all about. But surely there's got to be a way where you say, yes, I'm going to take this idea and I'm going to develop it and, uh, and, and live with it and build on it rather than saying, how can I get out of this for a quick buck? Yeah, well, look, on that front, that's one reason I like Musk because he's got a long-term objective of getting to Mars mm. and it's a survival of the human species type motivation there. And that is, you know, the, the making a profit is all secondary to that large objective. I'm actually personally in that situation myself. If I, if I was 40 years younger with the idea that I'm working on right now, I would be looking to run the company indefinitely. But at my age, 66, if I've got an exit strategy, I'd take it. Uh, from a software I'm working on that I'll be releasing to patrons in about six months to a year. Mm. Um, but it, it, it is this is one thing which William uh, Bill Janeway covers very, very well in his uh, book, Doing, doing uh, Innovation, do, doing, doing Capitalism in the Innovation State or some title like that, a very, very good book. I've forgotten its title, but I've enjoyed the contents. And Bill argues that one of the reasons you get innovation uh, is that people with large amounts of money can afford to lose large amounts of money, and therefore they're willing to take a risk with something. Yeah, uh, and that the 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 that's the free market, or, or the not the free market, but the market end of the spectrum to Mariana Mazzucato's work, saying the state can also afford to lose money. They've made no money out of the Apollo mission. Um, so if you're going to have innovation, you have to have people can, who can avoid who can absorb failure in various ways and still come out ahead. So that's what you want to maintain to give capitalism its its life essence in that sense. Um, so, to some extent, the exit strategy I can understand the the feeling. You know, if you want to make something and, and sell it and and get out and make a fortune that way, at least you've created the innovation. The danger is, and this this is affecting my thinking as well, is that I've seen plenty of corporations produce something new, get bought out by a major, and the major shuts it down. Yeah because they don't want the competition. My, my most recent experience there was when uh, Alan Kohler sold, uh, what was it called, Australian Business or the... Um, the, um, the, the his, um, his media empire, whatever. His yeah. media empire. I sold it for $45 million to Rupert Murdoch. Uh, that helped, actually helped me out for a while because I... Well, it happens, just, happens all the time, though, doesn't it, in the media? Yeah, he shut it down. He bought it to shut it down. Yeah, exactly. Get rid of competition. Yeah. So that's, that's when you get the negative side of large corporations and large amounts of finance. Mm. So, um, you know, it's... it's there's no, there's, there's no simple solution to the right. problem. Right, but, it, but it, going back to examples. going back to your idea though, yeah. uh, uh, Murdoch's empire. If uh, if if their shares had a, had a limited lifetime, then they would have to be arguing why people should be reinvesting in them. And if they're a company that was going around and just closing down competitors, what would you do? Would you invest in the company that was closing down competitors, or would you invest in in the companies that were going to be their competitors? And therefore, you might even the balance out a little bit. Yeah, it's it's a it's a difficult answer question to answer, but I'd I'd rather a world where we have at least something that uh, in the market system that enables that is specifically focused on generating 
uh, investment funds and innovation rather than this this the speculation the the um, you know the um, game of snap as 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 uh, Keynes described it in 1937 that the stock market has turned into yeah yeah but I mean yeah but just finishing off on that point if you had two companies a massive one and a small one and they were both pitching to investors because they had to. Uh, and the one big one says, well, give us the money so we can close this company down. Mm. Would you give them the money or would you give it to the company saying, no, give us the money because we're going to give them a run and, uh, you know, and, and we're going to grow the, grow the industry? You'd give it yeah, to the I smaller it, one. I hope it would change the mindset. Well, I might just finish off on something I think people should take a good look at. Mm. And this is the uh, Robert Schiller's excellent uh, uh, the, the CAPE index, which uh, a capital asset price, pricing index where he looks at the current share price uh, divided by the in- in- earnings of the previous 10 years. So you get rid of all the 10-year right. largely, he filters out all the speculative uh, companies that disappear, you know, the Allen Bonds of the world don't turn up in the index. If you take a look at the peaks of that market, there was one in 1901 when the ratio was 25 to 1, one in 1929 when it was 33 to 1, one in in in, two, in 1966, which is actually the bottom of there's a long period of falling share prices from that point on when it was 24 to 1. It hit 45 to 1 in 2000, which is, you know, that's this that's the scale of the dot-com bubble yeah, yeah. that you, yeah. you were part of. Okay, back to 25 to 1 in 2007 when it, when it finally crashed down to the 666-point mark and it hit a low of uh, about 12 to 1. It's currently 30 to 1. Mm. Now, that means that the current level of share prices, is, is, which people are thinking should continue rising, is exceeded only by the bubble of 2000. Uh, 2000. Yeah. Okay. So that we have driven share prices to a ludicrous level of valuation compared to the and profitability. They were of those crazy times because people were pushing money into companies for fear of missing out. Investors yeah. who really didn't understand the way the world was going, and so we're just going to be part of this uh, dot com game without understanding anything about it. And uh, yeah. and that's what drove that bubble. So mm. yeah, we're getting back up there, which is scary, isn't it? Uh, yes. Yeah. All right. Well, there we are. Let's do what we can to get rid of that bloody managerial class, Steve. Um, Put on a ship and send them off to another planet. That they could actually be musks in disguise. I'd love that. After the telephone sanitizers. Good People who don't know what I'm talking about should have a look at the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. By the way, <laughs> tells us a lot about the meaning of life, doesn't it? In just it two does. numbers. All right. Good to talk. See you soon. Okay, mate, bye. And I do have it in for the managerial class, that's for sure. But only because I've been fired by them uh, so many times in my career. I thought for telling the truth, but, you know, uh, sometimes the truth hurts. Uh, That's it for the Debunking Economics podcast this week with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. Catch you again next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.